0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cooper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, are we heading for a jobless future?
1: So today we're very excited to be joined by Martin Ford, who was the author of the 2009 book Lights in the Tunnel. But more importantly, he has a new book coming out on May 5th called Rise of the Robots. And we're going to be talking to him about that book today. Thanks for joining us, Martin.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: So yeah, we were both fans of your earlier book, and when we first started getting interested in this question, we went out looking for people who had written about it, and we found that you had done so. One of the only people at the time.
2: Yeah, at the time it was pretty much um, off the radar, but it's certainly gotten a lot more attention now.
0: I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with... With the concept of technological unemployment, they have probably heard us uh, going on about it uh, considerably, but let's just very quickly, in case anybody's joining us fresh, talk to them about, you know, what's the basic thesis of the book?
2: Well, the basic thesis is, is the same as my earlier book, which is that, you know, technology, machines, computers, robots, artificial intelligence are essentially going to displace people more and more. I mean, we're, we're getting very close, I think, to kind of the end game where technology is really able to do a lot of things that previously would have been, you know, confined to human beings. I mean, we're really entering a kind of a new age there.
1: And so, as you mentioned, you know, this topic often is scoffed at by economists, which is something that you mentioned in Lights of the Tunnel, that it was almost unthinkable to a lot of people. And I'm curious, since that book came out in 2009 and now about six years have gone by, uh, how has the conversation around this issue changed since then?
2: Well, I I think it's definitely changed and it's become a lot more visible. I mean, as you say, when I wrote that book, I I mentioned that that it was almost unthinkable in terms of the way um, economists approached it. And that's less true today. There are definitely some economists out there, at least a few, that are – now talking seriously about this. So, you know, it's really been quite a dramatic change as the, these technologies and, and the implications of them have become more visible. Um, having said that, I still think this is very much an idea that's outside the mainstream. And a lot of the economists that do talk about it tend to take a very, what I would call, a very conservative tack, which is that they still tend to believe that the solution to all this is is more education and training. All we have to do is, you know, train people so that they can climb the skills ladder and keep ahead of the machines. And I I think that that's an idea that pretty much has uh, run out of steam and we probably need to look at at some more radical proposals going forward. But definitely it is is a much more visible topic now than it was uh, back in 2009.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, Martin. We had a guest on this show recently, uh, Mark Lewis, who's a professor at Trinity University in San Antonio. And he very forcefully made the argument that uh, education is just not going to get us out of here. And he, he had some pretty compelling numbers. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, there's been a, a review of your book written uh, that I read by uh, the economist from George Mason, uh, Robin Hanson. And of course, he is somebody who is somewhat skeptical of this. But I think despite the somewhat dismissive tone of the review, there are a few things that were interesting enough to like bring up and give you a chance to respond to. One thing that I I thought was particularly interesting is that he brings up the history that despite a long time now of um, technological improvement accelerating at an extremely fast rate, we haven't seen a, a similar rate in what looks like job displacement or job loss as a result of that. You know, he poses a question sort of in, in the review, or he I guess he actually makes an assertion that we don't have any particular reason to think that contrary to prior experience, a big clump of displaceable jobs lies nearby ahead. And I was wondering what your response is to that. Do you think we do have any reason to think that jobs are, are um, going to get displaced soon that haven't been able to be displaced in the recent past?
2: You know, historically, he makes a valid point. Clearly, you know, computers have been getting better, and faster, exponentially for literally for decades now, and clearly we haven't seen you know an exponential impact on the labor market. If we had seen that, then then it wouldn't be any jobs left already. <laughs> right. Um, so his his observation is correct, but it's also important to note that the nature of an exponential is that that. At first, of course, it, it, it has very little impact, but eventually when you, when you get further into it, it, it begins to have a very dramatic impact. And I think that we're getting to the point where we're certainly going to see a much bigger impact than, than we have in the past. And, and it's really about machines and computers finally approaching the point where they're able to really substitute for a lot of things that, that people used to do on a much more broad basis than has been the case in the past. You know, the the people that tend to be skeptical of this, they will always point to history, and um, there certainly are examples going back up to 200 years. I mean, you can go all, ba- all the way back to the Luddite revolts in England where, you know, workers went on a rampage destroying mechanical looms and things like that. Um, but it is true that this has come up again and again since then, and it's um, always proved to be a false alarm so far. Um, and I think that, you know, that has to do with the fact that in the past, the technologies were relatively primitive. They were often mechanical in nature, and of course, they weren't very broad-based. They were often specialized. I mean, the classic example of that is agriculture, and this is the, this is the thing that the skeptics will usually point to first. Uh, it used to be in the late 1800s that actually nearly everyone in the United States worked on a farm. Now the number of people in agriculture is is less than two percent. So all those jobs basically went away. That was millions and millions of jobs, and yet clearly it didn't have a, a negative impact at all. It had a positive impact. On people went to other areas. They found better, more uh, meaningful jobs that that paid better. And we also have much cheaper food now, at least you know relative to our income. So we're, overall, we're much better off as a result of the mechanization of agriculture. Um, so so skeptics will point to that and say, you know, the same thing is. going to happen today. And I would push back against that and say, wait a minute, you need to think about this a little bit more because clearly agricultural technology was highly specialized. It was mechanical. It was tractors and machines that, you know, revolutionized farming. But those same technologies couldn't be taken out of agriculture and repurposed into the service sector. They weren't going to flip hamburgers and go into factories and do all the other jobs out there. And so what we've seen historically is that these technologies have hit on a sector-by-sector basis. First it was agriculture, later it was manufacturing. Factories automated and and to some extent offshore as well. And people move from sector to sector, from agriculture to manufacturing, and now everyone is in the service sector. And so the really disruptive thing I think we're going to see in the future is as, as information technology really impacts the service sector, which is where everyone works. But the key point is that information technology is a broad-based general-purpose technology. It's everywhere. It's not specialized like agricultural technology. So it's everywhere. And what that means is that there isn't any sector out there waiting to absorb all these workers. Everything is getting hit simultaneously now. So for that reason, I really think it's quite a different scenario than what we've seen in the past. And when you combine that that general-purpose nature of the technology together with the fact that you've got this exponential rate of advance, and and also the fact that for the first time, machines and computers are really taking on cognitive tasks as well as muscle power tasks. Uh, when you combine all of those things, what you end up with, I think, is, is something that is a utility, kind of like electricity, but instead of just delivering electric power, it's now delivering... To some extent machine intelligence it's it's delivering the capability to solve problems make decisions and and more importantly to learn you've actually now got algorithms that can learn based on real time and historical data and and machines can figure out how to do all kinds of jobs so i mean that's quite new and it's quite disruptive
1: in terms of new sectors though i wonder do you think it's too far-fetched to think you know that within the the service industry which is a very large industry that you know because of a human touch being a big portion of a lot of service jobs that that might be an area where jobs are more resilient and that we might move into more jobs that leverage human empathy or people who desire uh, specifically a human in their service interaction.
2: I, I think to some extent that's true. And I think also that people probably vastly overestimate that as as being a mechanism that's going to protect a lot of jobs. I mean, you can already see that, that computers and machines are getting better. You know, you, you see articles in the press about emotional artificial intelligence and things like that where where machines are beginning to really sort of push into that area. You you know, you can also point to, again, historical examples. You can look at bank tellers, and bank tellers really have a people job. if you go into a bank, they will be very friendly. They will smile at you. They will try to cross-sell you other things that are being sold by the bank. But that hasn't stopped people from moving, you know, en masse to using ATMs. I mean, people when they're presented with with automated convenience they very often will will make that choice okay. so i think that that's true to a certain extent and and another issue is there that very often those jobs that involve that kind of human touch aren't aren't especially good jobs and you hear a lot about home health care age, you know, for the elderly and um, service occupations like, um, you know, giving pedicures and things like that. And yes, there, you know, but we, we can't all have jobs where we, you know, just provide those kind of personal services to each other. I don't think that um, there has to be a, a core of employment where, where people have to have the kind of incomes that are necessary to support all that. And, and what is becoming increasingly clear is that, you know, technology is really having an impact on a, on a pretty broad swath of those jobs.
0: I kind of want to drill down on this idea of like what particular clump of displaceable jobs is sitting in the future. And I do feel like there's kind of an answer to this in your writing, which is uh, I'm seeing two big clumps of the service sector that seem in terrible danger of immediate displacement. One being that clump of the service sector that drives vehicles and another being that clump of uh, the service sector that basically processes natural language and does little else for a job. So basically, people who are uh, telephone customer service, for example, and they've been fighting a wave of automation for a while. But I think the current level of technology is still considerably less good than a human, but not because it can't search a database for an answer. It's because it can't understand you well enough. And it does seem like there's massive progress uh, being demonstrated at this point on both of those fronts. Uh, The the automated vehicle thing, which, of course, everyone's familiar with at this point, And also, you know, deep learning seems to be a, a major breakthrough for teaching computers language.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Those are both two um, disruptive areas. And I, I would point out that automated vehicles is not just about displacing drivers. I mean, it's much bigger than that. I mean, uh, Google's plan for automated vehicles in the future, their vision is that the cars would become a shared resource, um, at least in urban areas, so that you actually won't own your car anymore. Instead, you'll pull out your your mobile device and you'll call for a shared vehicle. And and that's incredibly disruptive if you sit down and think about what that would mean. I mean, think of all the car dealers, the independent repair shops, uh, insurance agents. Parking lots. um, Parking lots. You you know, in Los Angeles, there are 10,000 people. Who work in car washes. Yeah, we live in Los Angeles, so we're we're well aware. <laughs> a lot of those people, you know, have criminal records and things like that. It would be difficult for them to find a job elsewhere. And the reason they have jobs, of course, is that everyone owns their car and, and takes a lot of pride in it and, and seems to believe that going to a hand car wash is, is better than going to an automatic car wash. You know, if, if cars someday become fleet owned and, and you just call up and the car arrives, then all of that basically goes away. So it's not just specifically jobs for people to drive vehicles, and in fact there are millions of those jobs, but it's it's even thousands and thousands of independently owned businesses and, and insurance agencies and everything like that. So that's hugely disruptive if that really happens according to the kind of vision that, that Google in particular has for it. Beyond those areas that you mentioned, and I mean, another area I focus on is fast food. I think that it's inevitable that we're going to see more automation in fast food eventually. There, there's a company in San Francisco called uh, Momentum Machines that's working specifically on that, on building a, a machine that can crank out about 400 hamburgers um, an hour. Um, in many ways, fast food at least the production side of it is more like just-in-time manufacturing than really a service sector job. So I, I mean, if you've got you know factories in China automating to build precision electronics, then it stands to reason that we can also eventually automate hamburgers and lattes and tacos and stuff like that as well. So I think that you know, eventually those jobs are also in the sights. Um, the other area is general retail and there are a couple of things that are going to impact that one is that online retailers like Amazon are going to continue to get bigger and continue to disrupt brick and mortar and as that happens you might think in theory that doesn't mean jobs will disappear the jobs will just disappear from stores and then reappear in distribution centers you know owned by Amazon but the reality is that those distribution centers are becoming increasingly automated you know Amazon has made big investments in Kiva robots and in other forms of automation so I think it's reasonable to to assume that as jobs you know move more and more to to the online side that they're gonna be more susceptible to automation and then the other thing is you've got people bringing their mobile devices into retail environments and and eventually you'll be able to tap into something like IBM Watson that will give you real-time assistance, you know real-time natural language assistance right inside the store and will give you probably you know, faster and more accurate information than you would be able to get by trying to hunt down a, an employee in the store. And then, it, of course, it, there's also um, actual robots increasingly in retail. You know, there's a hardware store here in, in uh, Silicon Valley that has actually got, it's actually introducing robots that can not only give you information, but it can actually lead you to the place on, you know, in the store where where you can find a particular item and, and things like that. So... All of that is going to have, um, I think, a pretty big disruption throughout the service sector. And then on top of that, you've got all kinds of white-collar office jobs, really any kind of job where you're sitting at a desk in front of a computer, manipulating information in some relatively routine way, I mean, that's going to be highly susceptible. And you, you see examples already in terms of accounting, in terms of journalism, where you've got algorithms that can, can actually write articles pretty proficiently and um, legal areas where you've got document processing. That's just going to get bigger and bigger going forward.
1: Now, we've had information technology for, for not that long, but we've had it for a little while now. And there are certainly some troubling economic trends that we see stagnating wages, rising inequality, for example. To what extent can we say that, say, information technology or even technology in general? is at least partially the cause of these economic trends. And if that's the thesis here, what would be the best way to to actually try to tease that apart and measure technology's impact on the labor force going forward?
2: I mean, it's kind of a challenging problem. I believe, you know, obviously very strongly that, that information technology has been an important part of it. I, I would not argue that it's all of it by any means. And, and in my new book, Rise of the Robots, I point out about seven general trends that you can look at. And that includes the fact that wages have stagnated while productivity is, has continued to increase, so that productivity and incomes have kind of decoupled. It includes the fact that the share of income going to labor as opposed to capital has gone into a pretty precipitous decline, especially since the year 2000. Um, the labor force participation rate, meaning the number of people who are actually actively engaged in work, is falling. We're seeing wages for college graduates actually going into decline. So it's not the case anymore that that people with higher educations are, are doing extremely well. A lot of people with college degrees are also now being impacted. So there are a number of things you can look at there and, and the thing is that, if you take any one of these and you look at the research that economists have done, there are lots of explanations. Technology is nearly always one of the explanations, but there are, of course are other explanations. there is globalization, there is a basic change in our politics, which have become more conservative um, and in particular, there is the decimation of unions in the private sector and depending on you know who's doing the analysis and sometimes what their agenda is, they will point to those things as being more important than technology. But what I, what I believe is that if you take all that evidence collectively, if you look at all of those things together, it's really hard to come up with one explanation other than technology that can explain all of those things. And so for that reason, I think that technology over the last few decades has been really important. But still, the, the main point that I make is that you know, I'm not too interested in, in arguing about the past. I mean, I think that, that argument is going to continue basically forever. I mean, economists still argue about the Great Depression, you know, in in the 1930s, and what caused that. There still isn't total agreement about that, and I think the same will be true about the impact of technology over the last few decades. My focus is really on the on the future, and and one of the points I make is that a lot of these other trends, including, I think, to some extent, globalization and demographic changes, and um, for example, the fact that a lot of women have, been, have entered the workforce, um, and the fact that unions have been destroyed in the private sector, all of that is kind of played out to some extent. I mean, it's, it's done with. I mean, we've already sort of reached a limit there. Whereas technology continue to have this exponential increase. So when you look at that, I think what it suggests is that going forward from this point, technology is really going to rise above all these other factors, you know, it's going to become increasingly clear that, that technology is really the thing that is shaping the future. I think that that will become pretty unambiguous over the next decade or two.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to me. I mean, I think there's a dearth of good statistical economic approaches to actually teasing this out. And uh, certainly like some uh, people that I've seen writing, and they I'm sure have their own agendas, have argued, I think, relatively persuasively that, for example, most of the inequality increase that we've seen recently can be attributed to housing prices, but I agree with your focus on the future. what do you think we should be looking for as markers going forward? Like, let's assume for a moment that this thesis is correct and technology has been some a part of the equation in the past and it's going to be a larger part of the equation moving forward. What should we expect to see? What would ta- what would sort of prove us right here?
2: I, I think you can look to a number of things. I, uh, you know I believe that we'll see continuing, increases in inequality, I think that we'll continue to see stagnant wages even as productivity increases. Uh, we may see increasing unemployment. I mean, it's, so far you have to say that at least in terms of the way things are measured, the impact so far has not been so much in increasing unemployment per se, but in, in you know stagnant wages and in increasing what you might call underemployment and, and less stable employment. That That's been the story so far, but it's certainly possible that you know, at some point we could see real increasing unemployment.
0: And also it's been reflected in a in a lowering labor force participation rate, right? Which um, unemployment, uh, when the BLS calculates it, is as a percentage of the labor force. So as the labor force decreases, unemployment goes down, even if no more people get jobs.
2: That's but- right. A, lo- a lot of people, you know, if you give up looking for a job, and, and, and basically the way they do this is with a, a phone survey. So if they call you up and you say no, I'm not looking because I'm discouraged, I've basically given up, then, then you're out of the labor force and you're not counted as being unemployed. Um, and yeah, we see a pretty dramatic decrease in um, the labor force participation rate. Again, some of that is demographic and, and the economists will squabble over what's really going on there. But I, I certainly believe that some of it is technology and, and it's Basically, the reality that you know more and more of our population is essentially just not marketable in terms of the skills that they have and the capabilities that they have. Um, the other thing you've seen in in sort of conjunction with that is skyrocketing applications for social security disability, which is supposed to be just for if you suffer a serious injury on a job and can't work anymore, but I think it's pretty clear that it's being used as kind of a last resort, almost like a guaranteed income. It's actually the closest thing we have in this country to a guaranteed income program is the Social Security Disability Program, if you can get on, you know, in it. And people are using it that way because they don't have any other options.
1: Well, let's talk about guaranteed income, actually. Uh my my understanding in the new book is that you support a basic income, but In Lights in the Tunnel, it seemed as if you were specifically not supporting that type of program. Uh, There's a quote in which you say, A program in which everyone is provided a relatively equal income in return for doing nothing provides no motivation for self-improvement, no sense of self-worth, and no hope for a better future. This is the problem with existing welfare programs. So if you support a basic income now, it would seem that your perspective on that no, has changed. No,
2: no, I, I haven't changed. I mean, in the, basically what I proposed in the lights in the tunnel was was what I would call a guaranteed income, but it had incentives built into it. So it wasn't, it was a guaranteed income where everyone would get something, but but not equal. Meaning that if you say graduate from high school, you ought to get a higher income than if you don't graduate from high school. So it, it, essentially, it's what, what I really proposed was what you might call a modified version of a guaranteed income. But I, I still believe in giving everyone something. But I think that it, it, it does raise a real issue. Let's suppose that you're a marginal high school student. You're someone that really has to work at it in order to graduate from high school. And you know that when you turn 18, no matter what, you're going to get a guaranteed income that's the same as everyone else. I mean that's a pretty strong perverse incentive for you to basically drop out of high school at that point, isn't it? And and I think that would be disastrous for society. So what what I really have tried to do, and and I basically I, I offer the same essential solution in both books, in the lights in the tunnel, and also in this new book, is is I think that the idea of a basic income is good, but we need to build some at least rudimentary incentives into that, so that we don't really create an incentive to, for people just to. You know, not even educate themselves. I mean, that would be just, I think, disastrous if that happened. Because we, one thing I think you can say is that in the future things are going to get more complex, and as a democracy, it's going to be harder and harder us for us to to face up to these new challenges and figure out what to do. I mean, we need a an educated population. We can't afford to have a population that's primarily, you know, high school dropouts or something. Um,
0: well, I certainly agree that we need an educated population, but I want to push back a little bit on this idea that a basic income would be disastrous for society. Because I don't, I don't think I agree with that. And I think um, first off, there's intrinsic motivation in achieving higher status in society, and obviously, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon that graduating high school, graduating college is going to confer higher status on somebody. Plus, there's, you know, the reward of of education is its own reward. Uh, People do it just for their own betterment, I think, uh, if they're given the opportunity. And if you can go to school without being afraid you're going to starve to death while you do so... It uh, seems like that would encourage people to uh, take an educational route over working a dead end job and learning nothing, which is what a lot of people do nowadays if they uh, don't come from from means. So I- I'm curious whether you're basing that on just like a personal belief, or if you have you know uh, some some data that you think s- supports that. Because as far as I know, the limited studies that have been done have. Have been pretty positive in terms of relatively low basic incomes um, not being particularly uh, problematic with regard to uh, uh, people's self improvement.
2: Okay. Well, first of all, I think I, I mean I, I, I definitely wouldn't say that I'm against a basic income. I think I'm for. It. I'm just proposing a variation on it, and and it's not that dramatic a difference. But I mean, you you seem to believe that everyone should get exactly the same income, and I'm saying that there should be some some levels there. Um, they don't necessarily have to be dramatic. And I'm not saying that that the people at the bottom that get the lowest level of the guaranteed income should should be impoverished or or should get you know dramatically less than someone who graduates from high school. I'm just saying that it, it would be good to have some basic incentives built into there.
0: Right. I guess I'm just attracted to the simplicity of a system that has no tiers uh, and therefore no uh, bureaucratic overhead, really, other than the one task of making sure everybody only gets it once and that they don't collect two of them uh, by fraud. Uh, Other than that, it seems like, you know, the administration costs could be extremely low. And if these tiers that you're describing are not very dramatic, I'm also wondering whether they'll be very useful as incentives. You know, think about that marginal student that you were wanting to encourage to finish high school. If he's only going to get a little bit more than he would uh, dropping out, it seems like you'd need basically uh, an objective study to to determine that that was going to make any difference. Yeah, y- it. y-
2: it's um, true. I mean, I, w- I would support um, studies into this. This is this is really just something I'm offering on a conceptual basis. Obviously, no no one has ever studied this. I mean, there, there have been pretty limited studies done on on basic incomes themselves, and certainly the first step would be to have pilot programs to actually study this. I mean. Uh, the studies that have been done so far have been pretty limited. Basically, what I look at in terms of proposing this is the fact that, that we continue to have a really major problem with with high school dropouts, especially in, in certain underperforming areas and so forth. I, I, I do think it's really important to give people an incentive and also maybe to give them some sort of a a kind of a ladder that they can potentially climb that, 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 that's obvious to them. So
0: Yeah, one thing I'd like to add to that, because I completely agree with you that we have a big problem with uh, people not finishing high school in poorer areas in this country. And it seems to me like one of the major motivations people give when they do surveys on, on this is that they are leaving school to go to work. And I think if those people were entitled to a basic income of any kind, then might, we might actually see that that would do a, a lot to get those people through school.
2: Yeah. The other points I make in in the book, um, supporting, again, a basic income. I don't want you to get the impression I don't support that because I do and actually I devote a whole chapter to... <laughs> basically arguing for that. But one other thing is that I think there, there is um, what, what's known as the Peltzman effect. And, and Sam Peltzman was an economist at the University of Chicago who studied the impact of safety devices put in automobiles, things like seatbelts and so forth. And what he found is that as cars got safer with more regulation, it didn't actually improve the fatality rate. People still got killed in, in automobile accidents at the same rate. And the Peltzman effect is also known as risk compensation, and basically what it says is that if you give people some kind of a safety net by, you know, making things safer, they will then take more risk in order to make up for that. Uh, And you see the same thing with children's playgrounds, that if you've ever gone to a kid's playground nowadays, you'll notice that there's all this spongy rubber on the floor and everything, and everything is this kind of low-key plastic. There's nothing really dangerous anymore, and yet... What they found is that the kids still break their arms at the same rate as they used to when, you know, there were high monkey bars and things. And apparently what's happening is that kids are taking more risks now that the playgrounds are safer. And so the argument I make in the book is that if we had something like a basic income or guaranteed income, you'd see that same kind of effect in the economic arena. You know, people would have a safety net and they might be more inclined to, for example, start a business or leave a safe job in order to take a job at a small startup company that, that involves more risk and, and that type of thing. So it, it might actually, to some extent, create a more dynamic economy. So there, that could be a very positive effect. You, you could have lots of people that, you know, if you give people a, a sort of an income floor below which they can't fall, then many people would, I think, do things, entrepreneurial things to actually increase their income above that. And that would create a lot of a pretty strong dynamic effect in the economy, which could be a very good thing, provided that the incentives were correct so that you didn't, for example, tax away all the extra income that people were able to make by doing something um, with a small business. And so I, you know, I believe strongly that that's a very positive impact. But again, I go back to that, that incentive to get educated. A lot of these things in terms of starting a business or doing other things you know, in terms of the online economy, you need a basic threshold of education in order to do those things.
1: So let's uh, zoom out a bit and talk about why we want the basic income in place in the first place. Uh, I mean, the obvious one is that people need to eat, of course, but in Lights in the Tunnel, you talked a lot about the risk of consumer collapse, that if people don't have money in their pockets to spend, that that leads possibly to a very bad cycle where businesses have nobody to sell to, the mass market falls apart to the point that you know, businesses would fail and eventually this would affect you know, even the very wealthy as well. And that part of the reason that we need a policy of putting income in people's pockets is just
2: to to keep the whole thing churning.
1: Is that still a big emphasis in your new book?
2: Yes, I, I have a chapter on that. Um, and, and, you know, the new book is a little bit different from The Lights in the Tunnel. The Lights in the Tunnel was really kind of a thought experiment. I mean, it was just a, I just basically sat down and kind of imagined the future and talked about some issues. There wasn't a whole lot of data or specific examples in that book. Um, the new book, Rise of the Robots, has got a lot more actual economic data and, and specific examples. And in the chapter where I talk about this issue, about the fact that um, basically we need consumers to buy the products and services that are produced by the economy. I, I actually you know, do show some data that, that this is, I think, becoming a real concern, that you can actually point to actual evidence to suggest that um, this is really happening. And one, one thing that's happening is that consumption is, li- like income, becoming much more unequal. It used to be, you know, back in the 1990s that that the top 5% of households was responsible for about 27% of consumption. Now it's almost 40%. Um, so, so fewer and fewer households are doing more and more of the spending in the U.S. economy. And it looks to me that that's going to continue to be the case. And yet at the same time, we see that you know as, as automation begins to impact those higher level white collar jobs though even those those households at the top of the income spectrum and I'm talking about the top 5% not the top you know 0.1% but that top 5% is, is increasingly susceptible to this as well so um, you know it, it's, it really becomes unclear how sustainable it is you ultimately have to have people enough people to buy what's produced by the economy and and you know, it's not just about the aggregate amount of dollars out there. It's really about how those dollars are distributed. And you can you can think in terms of Warren Buffett or or Bill Gates. I mean, they, in theory, have an infinite amount of purchasing power. They can buy anything they want. But of course, they don't want to buy anything. I mean, you know, they're not going to go out and buy a thousand cars or a thousand smartphones. Uh, they're certainly not going to sit down and eat a thousand restaurant meals in one evening. So they, they cannot keep the whole consumer economy going by themselves. So when you, when you take purchasing power from a thousand people and concentrate that into the hands of one person, which is kind of what's happening, you know, that that has real implications. I mean, if you're selling a product or a service, it's not just the total amount of dollars out there, it's also unit demand. It's how, how are those purchasing power dollars distributed among consumers? That really matters, especially in a the mass market economy that we have today and i think that going forward that's going to be a, increasingly a concern and, and you see some evidence of that already um, in the retail business what you see is that retailers that focus on luxury goods have been doing really well and retailers that focus on the middle class have been really kind of struggling you know walmart has not has had you know one earnings report after another where, where they have not been doing especially well and it's because their consumers are you know basically don't have any discretionary income a lot of them are on food stamps so you know the the question is ca- can you really have an economy that's driven by people buying ferraris and yachts and 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 expensive handbags you know it's just not sustainable over over the long course If you if you really look at all the big industries that really drive our economy whether it's automobiles or consumer electronics or financial services, they all rely on markets that are made up of millions and millions and tens of millions of of people. And um, we need to continue to have an economy where there's a reasonable distribution of purchasing power so that you literally have enough people out there to buy these products and services.
0: So, what is a reasonable distribution of purchasing power then? Like, uh, you know, given the various measures that we have available to us, how high of an unemployment rate, or how low of a labor force participation rate, or how low of a uh, labor share of income would we have to get to, you think, before we see like serious repercussions in the sense that the market uh, collapses, or or you know, new new types of consumer goods can't make their market the way that they do now.
2: You know, I'm not an economist, so I don't delve too much into making specific numerical projections, but I think that even if you were to ask the, the economists a question like that, that, you'd get, you know, widely varying um, estimates. I, so, you know, that, that's a question that we're going to have to just wait and see. Um, I, I think, you know, if you look at what's happening already, there is cause for concern. If you look back at the economic crisis that we just had, I mean, everyone knows that that was... Started initially by by subprime mortgages, where people you know borrowed money that they couldn't they couldn't repay because they didn't have the income, and and the focus has always been on the fact that people were given mortgages they shouldn't have been given. But it, it's also important to note that the underlying cause is that these people simply didn't have the income to support a middle class lifestyle, really, and uh, you know that's a big part of what was going on. So when you have people that don't have sufficient income to you know, really aspire to the American dream or to to a middle class lifestyle, that's a real problem. And and they will tend to try to take on debt if they can in order to do that. And and so I think that there's definitely a risk going forward that we could run into a similar problem. I mean if incomes are not going to increase for most people, well at the same time house costs continue to increase, healthcare continues to increase, educational Um, Costs continue to explode. I mean, if, if there's no income, then the only alternative is really to take on more debt. And if people can do that, they will, and then we're likely to get ourselves into another crisis.
1: Well, you just mentioned the three areas that you know have been very resistant to lowering their price. You know, healthcare and housing and education. These are things that remain extremely expensive, and in many cases have gotten more expensive, while people's wages have not gone up to compensate for that. Since we're projecting future technologies here that are going to eliminate jobs, should we also be projecting future technologies that might actually start to lower the cost of some of those things like healthcare and education and maybe even housing? And is there a chance that if we were to you know, take a more optimistic view that maybe a lowered cost of living in the future might help us to avoid some of the more uh, dangerous aspects of this future?
2: In the long term, I think maybe you 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 can be hopeful about that. But in the, in the nearer term, it's it's difficult to see that. Again, in the new book Rising Robots, I've got chapters on healthcare and on education, and I talk a bit about this. So far, you know, it's a real challenge. Information technology simply has not transformed those sectors the way it has other sectors in the economy. In education, higher education in particular, you can look at what's happening with massive online courses, MOOCs, and and there is sort of an obvious path there that, that could lead to ultimate disruption and might really make a difference, but clearly it has not happened yet. Um, but at least there, there is, you know, a fairly obvious path forward. In healthcare, it's even more challenging. I mean, you look at things like nursing, like the need to take care of the elderly, and, and you can talk about building robots to do a lot of that, but it, it remains as of now a really daunting challenge. I mean, the idea that you can build an affordable robot that can do what a nurse does in terms of dexterity and mobility and, and problem solving and so forth is really pretty far out there in science fiction land at the moment. Um, You know, we, we do have robots designed to help in, in elder care and areas like that, but they tend to be pretty specialized and they really are pretty limited in what, what they can really do. So that's an area that so far technology is really kind of, falling short in the face of what is really just a really important and dramatic challenge that's looming demographically. So, we can hope that in the longer term, there will be big things happening there. I mean, we see also inroads in terms of artificial intelligence and in medicine, you know, things like IBM's Watson that, that's moving into, into medicine and so forth. And, and there, there's a hopeful story out there a little bit further in the future. But for right now, it's it's not happening quite yet. Um, so I think that that will remain a, a challenge for people in terms of, you know, people that work in other areas that are being disrupted, where automation is getting you know, more and more advanced and so their their incomes are falling or their incomes are stagnant and yet at the same time they're seeing exploding costs in, in education and healthcare. That's a big problem. The other thing is a lot of these things are, are double-edged swords. I mean, we can hope for a disruption in higher education and that may make education more affordable, but at the same time there are millions and millions of people that work in higher education. That's a really an area that, that provides, you know, good jobs for millions of people who have advanced degrees. If those jobs... suddenly Go away because of this disruption. And you know there, there are two sides to that. Clearly, same thing with healthcare. Um, you mentioned housing as well. One thing that might, in the longer term, be disruptive in housing that might make housing more affordable is is construction scale three D printers. I mean, there there are experiments with those already, and they could really make a big difference in terms of building affordable housing. But it would also eliminate you know huge numbers of construction jobs. So you know these things have sort of Two sides to them. And it's not clear exactly how that's all going to play out. So, you know,
1: eventually people are going to notice that this is happening. And what happens with that reaction? I mean, I, I, one thing that you mentioned in, again, in your previous book is that, you know, that could lead to people being concerned about their future employment and therefore spending less, which could even, you know, speed up the type of problems that we're worried about. But it could also, you know, trigger, the type of societal change that might get us out of this mess? Like, when do you see people like taking note of this? And what do you think happens as this starts to become more obvious to people?
2: Again, that, you know, that's really, I think, impossible to predict, but I do think it's becoming more visible. I think that, as you say, people are beginning to worry about it more. I think that in general, unemployment today is is perceived differently than it was 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, it used to be that to be unemployed meant you got laid off. And a lot of times the, the same company would hire you back it was really perceived as a, as a temporary thing. Nowadays, people understand that a lot of times if they lose their job, it may take a long time to find another job. And if they do find another job, it means a permanent reduction in earnings. So I I think it's fair to say that, you know, the public in general and consumers in particular perceive unemployment and the threat of unemployment differently today than it once did. It's becoming more of a a big risk. And and for people beyond a certain age, um, it may even mean, you know, permanent premature retirement. So it's really a pretty big, you know, looming risk in terms of, you know, the impact on consumption and so forth. Um, so yeah, I think awareness is building, and and part of what I'm trying to do, certainly with this book, is is to begin a conversation. I think that that's really important. You know, one of the things that that we've seen historically is that politics moves really slowly. I mean, I think you can point to healthcare as being a good example. Um, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was talking about universal healthcare in the 1930s, and it took something on the order of 80 years to get to Obamacare which for the first time is some form of universal health care in the United States. And even now, it's extraordinarily divisive. You know, the Republicans would like to repeal it. Um, Some people hate it, but at least we have it now after 80 years. And that's how long it took to get to the point where we're actually able to implement something, whether you like it or not. When it comes to this issue of of technological unemployment from accelerating technology, I don't think that we have 80 years to play with. I mean, this is going to happen a lot faster than that. And yet, you know our our ability to adapt politically to this challenge is just extraordinarily slow i mean history shows that so i think it's really important to begin talking about this and to give it more visibility and to hopefully kind of inject this question into the political arena you know sooner rather than later um if we really want to have a, a good outcome to all of this
0: yeah well we definitely agree with that we've been pushing for people to talk more about this for some time And before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to respond to something. This is like uh, maybe a little bit of fun. But uh, in that Hansen review of your book, Robin Hansen um, proposes two bets. And I want to read these bets and, and ask you if you'll take these odds, because I think they're interesting. I think they might lead us to a little bit of interesting discussion. So he says, I've expressed my skepticism about big automation progress soon. And this is the bet that he has. He's laid two bets. One is uh, betting $1,200 at 12 to 1 odds that the BLS's measurement of the labor fraction of U.S. income won't go below 40% by 2025. So below 40% in 10 years. And then the other one is that he's bet a a grand at 20 to 1 odds that computers and electronics hardware won't be over 5% of US GDP. That is, businesses purchasing computers and electronics hardware won't be over 5% of of US GDP in that same 10-year period. Uh, What do you think of those bets? And would you take those odds?
2: Well, yeah, I'd have to think about it. And and you know, delve into it, it's possible, but yeah, in general, I'm not a huge fan of, of bets because of the famous story of Paul, Paul Ehrlich and the other guy, um, Julian Simon, right, so Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon had a bet, and uh, it you know, it's very famous, and, and Julian Simon actually won the bet, um, you know, he bet against this Thesis that um, we would see a rise in commodity prices as a result of overpopulation and stress on the environment and stuff. And conservatives look at that and they believe that as a result of Julian Simon winning that bet, this issue is being put to rest. And yet, you know, people who have analyzed it found that that if you looked at the outcome of that bet today, as opposed to within the time frame that they actually made the bet, you know, it may have been the opposite result. Um, So it really didn't settle anything because any bet is specific to a particular time frame. So, you know, I, for that reason, I, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical of the idea of of taking a bet with a specific date, you know, it could be that by 2025, Robin Hanson is going to turn out to be correct. And maybe, maybe we won't see that. But maybe by 2035, it'll be a huge issue. I really don't know exactly what the timing is going to be. But um, I do think that this is coming and it. That it's inevitable.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's a legitimate point. I also want to point out that I think this this bet is extremely stacked. Like, uh, it's only a ten year time period, and he's saying uh, that the uh, the the labor fraction of U.S. income won't go below forty percent. Now, uh, I looked this up, and I couldn't find uh, numbers for this year, but the recent change over the last fifty years uh, in that statistic went from sixty two percent to fifty eight percent. So, there's been four percent negative change. And he's suggesting that it would drop an additional 18 percent. So
2: yeah, I mean, if it falls to 41 percent, that, that, that would be pretty bad. I would think I wouldn't be happy if, if, if it were 41 percent, because I think that would be a pretty dramatic. Um- Drop, you know. Right. Well,
0: even if it were fifty percent, which would be, I think, pretty extreme compared to what the rate has been so far, I, I'm not at all convinced that forty percent is a magic number under which you know we have economic unrest and over which we don't. I I think uh, it seems to me like you could completely agree with your thesis, Martin, and still assume that forty percent's a pretty extreme number for it to hit. And I I don't have good data on the, uh, on the other bet. But my guess is that it's kind of moot because he says, uh, you know, odds that computers and electronics hardware purchases and he, does, he excludes software. So that's, I think, leading leaving out a huge uh, question mark, which is that the hardware may become so incredibly cheap that even though we're buying a lot of it, we're not spending a lot on it. And we might be spending most of that money on software to make the hardware useful. So I, I feel like you could, he could easily win these bets without being right. <laughs> Uh. yeah I think that's
2: right i didn't when you read the bet to me i didn't realize he was excluding software yeah that, that that would certainly be a big issue. I think that already software is becoming a much bigger component of, of IT spending but in general you know I, yeah I, Robin Hanson, I have kind of a history with him. I once actually debated him on on a, a TV show about this, and he has kind of an odd perspective is he's, he's actually a singularian. he believes in this stuff in the far future, he just doesn't think that it's going to have an impact now. So he has, I think, kind of an odd perspective, which says that eventually we're going to have real artificial intelligence, or everyone is going to upload their brain into the cloud or something. And then at that point, it's going to be a huge issue. But that's not going to be for 100 years or something. But in the meantime, it's not going to have any impact at all. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think that long before we get to you know, true artificial intelligence or brain emulation and things like that, specialized technology are going to really have a dramatic impact on a, the work that a lot of people are doing. And the reason is simply that most people do relatively routine, specialized things. I mean, that was really Adam's whole point about the division of labor is that over time, people do more and more specialized activities. And the reality is that not everyone is a rocket scientist. A lot of people, a huge percentage of our population, do things that are on some level, fundamentally routine and predictable. And displacing those people does not require science fiction, artificial intelligence. It only requires you know, machine learning and, and specialized artificial intelligence of the type that we see already and which is sure to get better and better over the next couple of decades. So I wanna ask
1: you one final question, which is given that all of us seem to support some version of a basic income, but given that this is not much of a often-discussed topic in modern American politics—in fact, it's, I think it's the kind of thing that most people immediately have a negative response to upon hearing the idea if they're not familiar with it—how do we go about selling this to people if it's what we need moving forward? I mean, obviously, one answer might be write a book about it, which you've done. But uh, but beyond that, I mean, how do we persuade people that this is not some sort of yeah? What's socialist the framing takeover? that we
0: should use? Because I think it's just on the surface, it sounds so deeply un-American. Um, but uh, I think you know, as you've said, it's it's potentially the only way to uh, maintain our current competitive market uh, social structure. So, what, how do we market that?
2: Well, one one of the things that I try to do in my book when when I talk about it is. I try to my best to market it as a conservative idea rather than a socialist idea, which it, and, and that's actually the cor- correct perception. I mean, the idea of a basic income has had support from people on both sides of the political spectrum, but actually it has been libertarians and conservatives that have really... Talked it up quite a bit in the past and and most notably was Friedrich Hayek, who um, has now become kind of a conservative icon. You know, you you hear about Friedrich Hayek on Fox News all the time, but he was a big supporter of a a guaranteed minimum income. Um, Milton Friedman, another big conservative icon, supported the negative income tax. Richard Nixon actually had an actual proposal for a guaranteed income at one point. So it is, it is an idea that can be embraced by conservatives. And, and, and the perspective I would offer is this. If this is really going to happen, and if we're going to see people increasingly having their livelihood, their incomes impacted, and if people are going to become more and more insecure economically, eventually people are going to insist that the government do something. And there are two paths you can take. Have the government... Take over more and more of the economy, create jobs for people artificially, maybe house people, you know, build low-income housing or even, you know, these kind of dystopian, quasi-institutional type environments where people get housed if they don't have jobs, maybe provide food, you know, and, and shelter to people, have the government do that directly. That's really the big government socialism path. The other path is to just give people money and let them go out and participate in the market. And that's what Hayek supported. That's what Friedman supported. That's really the conservative idea is that you have a market-oriented approach. So a guaranteed income or a basic income, whichever path you want to take, is really a conservative idea when you look at it in that sense. Um, and that's the argument that I that I make in my book. One thing that that's quite remarkable, I've seen just just an article I just saw a few days ago it was on um, the site Vox, suggested that a couple of proposals from Republicans that are on the table right now, including one idea from Marco Rubio and also the fair tax proposal, which remarkably enough is supported by um, Ted Cruz. I think actually, have embedded with them a path toward a guaranteed income, perhaps. Um, the fair tax actually. And I don't know if that's an idea that I, I support or not, but embedded in the fair tax is a proposal to give a rebate to everyone of about $7,000 a year, whether you work or not. So that would actually be, in essence, a guaranteed income. And I don't know if the Republicans that support that idea are aware of that. Maybe not. And maybe if they were aware of it, they'd be unhappy, We shouldn't tell but, them. <laughs> um, remarkably, there are a couple of conservative proposals out there that could at least be some sort of a a path toward a a guaranteed income, whether the people who propose those ideas know it or not. So there is more talk of this, you know, there are are proposals on the table that could lead in this direction. And I think that hopefully we will see more of a conversation about it. Well,
1: uh, that sounds like a good place to end. So, so thank you so much for, for coming on. And the book comes out, I believe, on May 5th. Is that correct?
2: That's right. May 5th. Uh-huh. So
1: I want to encourage all of our listeners to check that out. Is there any final thing that you want to, wanted to say
0: that we didn't ask you about?
2: I think you covered it. I think this is really good. All right. Thanks very much for
0: uh, doing this. It was uh, a lot of fun. We appreciate you being on the show.
2: Okay. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So thanks for listening to our episode about Martin Ford's new book, If you like the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle there is at RTF underscore podcast. And we really, really love to hear from you guys. Send us an email, leave us a comment. We are trying to aggregate enough feedback from you to do a little mailbag feature. So keep those letters coming.
1: So a few more things before we wrap up. Number one, Ted and I are very excited about a graphic novel that we are working on called Let Go, which deals with all kinds of futurist themes, including the topic of this podcast, technological unemployment. And we're going to be doing a Kickstarter for that soon. But right now we have a page up at letgocomic.com that just has a little sampling of the art and we're going to be adding more stuff to that soon. So I hope if you, if you like the graphic novel format and you like these topics, you'll check that out and stay tuned as we continue working on that and eventually uh, raising a little bit of funds just to get the art finished. So a little bit of a self-plug there. Uh, a couple other things that I want to mention, too, is that Ted and I were guests recently on two other great podcasts that I want to recommend. Uh, we were on episode 138 of the awesome Robot Overlords podcast. That was a little while ago now that we were on that podcast, but it's all still relevant stuff. And we were also guests on the also great Futurology podcast, and that was episode 18. So if uh, our biweekly episodes, for some reason, aren't enough of us talking for you, then you can find more of us on those other shows, which you should check out. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.
0: To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at ReviewTheFuture.com. Thanks for listening.